The Cozy Robot Show. Well, hey, Cozy Robots. If you are watching this on the replay or listening to the podcast that comes out later in the week, you missed our little technical scramble to get this episode going every week. It's something I so appreciate all of your patience and uh, understanding as we get this new program off the ground. And the Cozy Robot Show is a program where we're trying to figure out how to understand our feelings and how to understand the world and how to create a world that we actually all want to live in together. And to that end, we release the Cozy Robot Show everywhere. We're live right now on YouTube and Facebook and Periscope, which is kind of Twitter and kind of not, and Twitch all at the same time. Uh, and on that note, we want to be wherever you are. That's the live edition. It also comes out after the fact as segments on all those social media channels, plus Instagram, as well as a podcast on Wednesdays. I can see during the live uh, event uh, all your comments. So I can see everybody commenting now. Thank you that you can see me and that everything is working. That is so helpful. Uh, but if you're on Facebook, you might be missing out on some of the chatter. So uh, it seems that the bot we use called Restream Bot does a great job at letting YouTube people and Twitch people see each other's comments. But it seems like Facebook wants no part of this platform agnostic experience. So if you see me referencing comments you can't see tonight and you're on Facebook, that's why. And if you're on YouTube or you're on Twitch and you see Restream Bot, that is letting you see people's comments on other platforms. <laughs> Jenna is our one Twitch viewer so far tonight, which is pretty normal. So again, we're we're learning, we're trying something new, right? It's a pandemic. Why not? Uh, so you know. Anyway, so this is all set up. Anytime. You hear something on the show you like and you want to share it. That's why we cut the little segments up and release them on different platforms. And the reason we're on so many streaming platforms is so you can watch wherever you're at. We're just trying to make this easy. If you want to watch on YouTube, that's really easy. Great question, Nathan. If you just go to CozyRobots.com slash watch, it will automatically take you to the YouTube version of this show. But if you're on Facebook and want to watch on Facebook, feel free that's a lot of fun. Wherever you're watching, just make sure you like and subscribe so you can see whenever we release new episodes of the show as well as those segments. And we would love for you to join us at our after party. We have a thriving community of cozy robots uh, on our Discord server. And every week after the program, we get together and talk. Now, you might be saying, well, what in the world is Discord? Discord is a platform that allows us to chat in real time, both in text and talking to each other. If you'd like to learn more about how you can join the Cozy Robots, you can learn all about that at CozyRobots.com. Gosh, it's good to see everybody on a Monday night. And this week, we have got just an incredibly important important topic to discuss. And that topic is codependency. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard the term codependency or what might come to your mind when you think of the term codependency. 
I thought we would start, and I never do this, but I really want to start with the dictionary version because there's so many ways to understand codependency and people might have so many different existing understandings or you might go, I don't know what the heck codependency is, Mike. What are you talking about? And in any of those cases, let's kind of center in on what we're talking about. When I looked up in the dictionary what codependency is, it said, a psychological condition or relationship in which a person is controlled or manipulated by another who is affected with a pathological condition, such as addiction to alcohol or heroin. So that's, that's pretty heavy stuff. And you might hear that definition and go, well, gosh, I'm not addicted to any substance and no one in my family system or close friends are addicted to any substances, this episode is not for me. And I would ask you to just pause for a moment and not jump out too quickly. Because that classical understanding of codependency as a psychological mechanism in which people cope with being in close relationship with people who have substance abuse problems has grown into any kinds of pathological conditions that require really excessive accommodation from people in their lives in order to maintain any sense of peace or co coexistence or cohesion. You might be thinking, well, Mike, why are you doing a show on codependency? And here's why. Codependent patterns can form anytime children have to be the adult in a relationship with an adult. Now, be the adult would kind of be in quotes there. When a child has to parent a parent or be a caregiver to a caregiver or in some way act as the mature and responsible party in a relationship with an adult with whom they are close, that is often something that causes codependency to exist in that person's life. Have you ever been told that you're so mature for your age, that you carry yourself well? Often those are little glimmers of codependent patterns because children who have to be mature in the place of an adult who should be mature for them, that's a big lift for a child to handle. And even if you've had... Um, better caregivers and role models in your life as a child. I've also found and have been reflecting on the ways that many of our social systems and institutions create codependent-like patterns. I think of the ways that our government wants us to behave as children that are dependent. And I don't mean government in some abstract sense. I mean the leaders, the political leaders in governments. I think often uh, churches and religious institutions and spiritual institutions try to create codependent patterns, especially when leaders exhibit maladaptive or some would say toxic behavioral patterns. Those who exist in that community have to enter cycles of codependency in order to make everything feel okay. And so right now at this particular junction, in history, I actually think it's more important than ever that we talk about codependency, how it happens in our lives, and what it means to us. And I think to do that, I'd like to jump right in to 
my favorite part of the Cozy Robot Show, which is where we ask you to send in your questions and curiosities about a given topic in a segment we call Ask Mike About. <laughs> and it would have been so cool if, if that title play. <laughs> All right, let's see if I just click in the computer if it works. Okay, this is going to be a fun week, I can tell already. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad we have a moment just to laugh together. Um, and here's why. As we go through, um, as we go through these questions, I just want to, I just want to give everybody the permission to take this episode at your own pace. So if a question that someone asks um, makes you feel anxious or nervous or places I start to go in my answer make you start to feel activated, I just want to remind you that any time you want, you can press pause even in the live show. That if things seem too heavy, that you can go do something else and come back. This is being recorded. I'll be here anytime you need me. And there's no need to push yourself to make it through an experience in media. I just want to give you the permission because when we talk about codependency, we are going to talk about some things that uh, often involve deep wounding in people. And those wounds, uh, well, they typically come from childhood. So as we listen to this first question from Jill, I just want to remind you that you are in total control over your experience with this episode of the program. Hi, Mike. I have a question about my codependency problem. Um, it has to do with one of my kids that's living with me, and I know I need to help them financially, mental health-wise. My granddaughter lives with me, too, so it takes a lot of time. I'm wondering how I can set small attainable goals to stop my codependency without threatening their mental health. Because I, I know she needs, he needs help. He's a trans man. I, I know he needs help, but I think I'm helping too much. Hmm. Hmm. Jill, that phrase at the very end, I think I'm helping too much. <sighs> that speaks a lot. Could I, could I start by saying thank you, Jill? Thank you for making an effort. I have so many trans friends in my life. And they're so hurt. Because often their parents or caregivers or family members don't even make an effort to care or love too much. Or to correct themselves when they misgender their loved ones. And hearing you say she and instantly correct yourself, I just, I felt so encouraged. I felt so happy, you know. We are at this period in our lives where we are learning more and more each day how to love the people in our life who are trans. And to do so, we have to relearn a lot of social routines, especially around pronouns. 
And so no matter what we talk about with codependency, the love that you have for your son is so obvious. And so often, when we talk about patterns of codependency, that is true. When we are codependent people, it does not mean that we can't love other people. Codependency fundamentally usually means that we cannot love ourselves very well. And we compensate by trying to love others, hoping that they can offer us some sense of self-worth, some sense of self-love. You know, I'm a, I'm a very codependent person. And I noticed that it was really hard for me to have any confidence in myself when I was starting to do podcasts and starting to say things on camera because I didn't have an audience uh, whose approval I could borrow. You know, when I get on stage, I can see people really care for me and enjoy what I'm doing. And so I borrow their approval for me when I don't have it myself. And when we look at that dynamic, it's one thing in media, and it's another in families. Codependency, when it exists in our lives, it's there because it helped us survive incredibly difficult circumstances. So, you know, you asked for some common sense steps, some small moves you could make, and I do have a couple for you. Number one is communicate openly. You know, if you think that you're existing in patterns of codependency, you can say, I think I have a lot of patterns of codependency, and it's going to take me some time to work through these, but I want you to know that I see that, and I'm working on it, and I'm open to communicating and getting feedback about it. Another thing that we can do when we are learning to move through patterns of codependency out of what is called enmeshment which we're going to talk about a little bit more in our conversation later in the program, and intimacy. You move away from enmeshment and into intimacy, and that requires doing something that perhaps we've never done before, and that is clearly naming our needs. It is so easy to imply needs. It is so easy to try to telegraph needs, but stating clearly what we need from another person, that often requires a lot of work. You might not be able to imagine your needs in your own mind, and that will probably require some work, therapeutic work. But guess what? Before we can name our needs, you know what we can do instead? We can name the fact that it is difficult for us to name our needs. So as I've been working through my codependency, I will tell people, gosh, I'm working through codependency in my life, and it's hard for me to know what I need in order to name it, and I know that that's not fair to you. Another thing we can do is ask other people to name their needs and offer positive social support and affirmation when they do. It can feel good when we're enmeshed with people, when we're anticipating and guessing what they need, and they are doing the same for us. That is often positioned as laudable in religious and spiritual communities. But it's so easy to get hurt feelings and misunderstandings 
when we are guessing and often misestimating what another person's needs are. Do you know what I have found in my life? Often when I think I'm doing something that another person wants without asking them, I'm not helping the situation. And sometimes I even hurt the situation. And there's a tool for troubleshooting patterns in relationships that I have found incredibly helpful. And it is called <laughs> the Cartman Drama Triangle. Uh, I love the name. It's that named after Stephen Cartman, but the Drama Triangle, it sounds so intense. <laughs> but what this is, is... um a model for understanding patterns of codependency and how they show up in conflict in relationships. And when we look at the Cartman drama triangle, which if you're a, a person who's followed my work, you may have heard me discuss it before. I, I really appreciate what it has to offer. It says that we take on one of three roles in social relationships or in conflict during relationships. Are we the persecutor or prosecutor? Are we the victim? Or are we the rescuer or hero, right? Three different roles we tend to take. Prosecutors typically open conflict situations by raising an issue. But when we're codependent and we don't have a sense of self-worth, we're obsessed with what other people think about us. And in codependency, conflict is typically about trying to manage my sense of self-worth and my reputation. And instead of talking about whatever could actually make things better, which is some sense of compromise or consensus through communication, instead we get caught in a cycle of trying to convince ourselves and the person we're having conflict with that we are, in fact, a good person. So a persecutor raises an issue, a victim leans back and says, I'm so helpless. Now, hold on. We need a caveat here. When we talk about victim mentalities in psychology, what we are talking about is a release of agency as a defense mechanism. What we should never do with psychology is use psychology to dismiss actual victims. It is not for someone else to tell you you are being a victim. It is for you to understand when you are having taking on the victim role in a conflict, which is not the same as being a victim of abuse. When you're a victim of abuse, whether that's personally in a relationship or systemically in society, you have very real grievances and very real hurts. So I just I want to name that difference because so often in the United States, especially, I have seen the way we talk about victims in psychology horribly misused to erase the suffering and difficulties that people face. A woman who speaks of sexual assault is not a playing the victim in the Cartman drama triangle. I'll give you an example. When my wife asks me why I didn't take the trash out when I said I would, and I say, well, I'm sorry, I've just been working too hard and I'm tired, that is the Cartman drama triangle victim. Do you see how different they are and how inappropriate it would be to conflate those two things? But when you become a victim in response to a prosecutor, 
in this model, that makes the prosecutor feel bad. So often they'll try to become the hero and say, you know what, I'll just do whatever it was I was talking about in the first place, which makes the victim feel bad. And the point here in this red triangle, the Cartman drama triangle, is we just spin around in these roles trying to make ourselves feel good about who we are and trying to convince the person we're in conflict with or anyone watching that we're good people. And a therapist I know named Courtney Leak has an alternative to the Cartman drama triangle, uh, which she calls the green triangle, and it is marvelous. And it is, it looks like this. It's uh, where we have choices, boundaries, and ownership, right? Choices, boundaries, and ownership. Ownership, meaning really taking ownership when we've done something wrong and not escaping that and even apologizing. I'm sorry ends in a period, not in a comma, but. I'm sorry, I, and then whatever. And it's not, I'm sorry, you feel hurt. That's not ownership. That's, gosh, that's actually a really sneaky way to play the victim, isn't it? I'm sorry, I hurt you. I'm sorry, my actions hurt you. That's ownership. I'm sorry, I didn't do the thing I said I would do. Full stop. Really hard to do when you have patterns of codependency. Especially hard to do when you're used to taking ownership for things that aren't actually your fault because you're codependent. <laughs> Which is like, Kind of a mix of the victim role and the rescuer role. Ownership of what is actually yours to own and nothing of that which is not. Choices, meaning honor someone's choices. If someone says, I, you know, well, fine, I'll just do it myself. Then you say, I honor your choice if that's what you'd like to do. I've taken ownership and I'm still willing to do my part. But if you want to do it, I'll respect your choice. And then boundaries. We're going to talk a lot about boundaries later in this episode. But boundaries when we are saying no we're saying no we're 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 setting a line about what is and is not okay which can include saying i won't continue this conversation in the tone in which we are having it if it's hurtful if it's abusive if it's activating it can a conversation can be activating without anyone being at fault you know i'm a very sensitive person so i get activated easily people can use totally appropriate normal tones in conversation and because of my trauma background I find that activating so I might have to set a boundary and say I need some time to de-escalate myself and if the, if the person says oh I'm sorry I might even say you know what? you don't need to apologize for my trauma though I appreciate the sentiment and then go and work to de-escalate myself but what I have found is that these Green triangle methods are a great step or set of steps we can take when we learn about the Cartman drama triangle as people who are codependent. We, anytime I notice that I am the persecutor, the victim, or the rescuer, I know in that situation my codependency is starting to show up. And when my codependency shows up in my relationships, I know I'm ultimately not relating to that person in a way that is sustainable or helpful for me, which means eventually this relationship won't be helpful for them either. 
because of the volatility that can be introduced. Jill, thank you so much for a wonderful question. And I am so thankful to my friends over at BetterHelp.com for making this episode possible. BetterHelp is an online counseling service. They are the easiest and most convenient way to get mental health support today. You can text and chat, do video calls, traditional phone calls with a licensed expert that BetterHelp will find for you. I use BetterHelp every single day for my own mental health needs. They'll give you 10% off your first month service. All you've got to do is visit betterhelp.com slash science mic. That's betterhelp.com slash science mic. You'll fill out a questionnaire and they will connect you with a counselor that you are going to love. And then my friends over at KiwiCo are really helping us out in this era where so many of us are spending more time at home. Uh, Just this week, we got a KiwiCo crate at our home, uh, which was part of the Eureka line that is an electrical pencil sharpener. And I am so excited about putting it together. Uh, I think there was a moment where Jenny and I weren't really sure who was going to get to do the honors. I think in the end, uh, the pencil sharpener experience is more my lane, and she'll probably do the next one. Uh, I absolutely love it. My kids do the Kiwi Co-Crates, too. And then uh, listeners and viewers of this program send me pictures all the time of their families using these crates. Kiwi Co. makes it fun to learn about concepts in STEAM, that's science, technology, engineering, art, and math. Uh, They offer structure, fun, and opportunities for hands-on exploration. Kids and adults alike are able to play and learn independently thanks to clear and kid-friendly instructions. And most important of all, every crate includes absolutely everything you need. So you never have to worry about running out and having to go to the store or go to you know some other retailer and order online and wait for some piece of tape or glue or gear to arrive. Every KiwiCo Kiwi crate is a completely self-contained experience and something new arrives each and every month. I see Lacey saying that we've loved the crates. Thank you for that. So if you'd like to get the steam energy happening in your home, with hands-on art and science projects that kids can build things like a planetarium or a scratch art lantern, all these kind of things. They even do kid-friendly chemistry. You can get 30% off your first month by going to kiwico.com slash AskScienceMike. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash AskScienceMike. Okay. And now... Let's uh, see what question that Aaron has for us about codependency. Hey, Mike, it's Aaron from Buford, Georgia. I was just curious if there's any level of codependency that is healthy, um, such as in a marriage or close friendship or parent and children. How do you know when you've crossed from a healthy dependency into an unhealthy codependency? Thanks. Yeah, what a great question. How do we know? We move from a healthy to unhealthy amount of codependency. I would say a couple of things as a clarification, things I've been learning myself. You know, for most of my life, I've talked about things that are healthy or unhealthy in terms of my patterns of behavior and especially about matters of mental health. And I don't 
really know that I do that anymore because what is healthy and unhealthy can be hard to understand. And we have such stigma about mental health in our culture. And when we use terms like unhealthy about ourselves or others, I mean, Aaron, your, your question sounds like it's about you. And when we describe ourselves as unhealthy in some way, that can create a shame response, especially for people who are working through codependency in their lives. So I've been trying to move away from thinking about healthy and unhealthy and move toward adaptive and maladaptive. You might hear me sometimes say healthy and then catch myself and then switch to adaptive or say unhealthy and then catch myself and switch to maladaptive because I'm a person, I'm a human being, and change takes time. Um, so I just want to start with that kind of framing. The question for me is like how adaptive or maladaptive is a given pattern for us in life and in relationships. And that's really helpful because it takes us out of, is codependency good or bad? Well, that, that's, that's a silly question. Codependency is neither good or bad. Codependency is a survival tool or a set of survival strategies that people employ because of pain they've experienced in their life. So the only question then, if, if we think adaptive and maladaptive, is like, is the pattern I'm engaging in this relationship serving me well or not? Is it serving the other person well or not? Because for a relationship to be sustainable, the interactions between two people need to serve both of them well more often than not. Codependency left unchecked leads to a volatility in relationships because we spend our emotional resources trying to manage someone else's feelings in hope they will manage our feelings for us. And that can lead to crisis. It can surprise both parties in a relationship, the person exhibiting codependent behaviors or the person on the receiving ends of them. Because you could say, you could think you have this friend who's so helpful and so kind and so selfless, and they do that until they're emotionally exhausted, and suddenly this new person shows up. When does that person show up? When the codependent person has emotionally and physically exhausted themselves. And you might say, Mike, how do you know that? Because I am so wildly, wildly codependent, y'all. When we make this program, The Cozy Robot Show, a lot of people work with me to make it happen. And they're constantly asking me what I need and how I'm doing. And those are such hard questions for me to answer. So as you have asked me, how do we know we're moving into patterns of codependency that might be maladaptive? I'm going to share with you signs from actual experts. This is a list I got from Mental Health America. Here's some signs of codependency. Having a hard time saying no. Having poor boundaries. Showing emotional reactivity. If you've watched me for very long over the last few years, you've probably seen a lot of emotional reactivity. Feeling compelled to take care of other people. Having a need for control, especially over others. Having trouble communicating honestly. Fixating on mistakes. Feeling a need 
to be liked by everyone. Feeling a need to always be in a relationship. I think the inference there is a romantic relationship. Denying one's own needs, thoughts, and feelings. Having intimacy issues. Confusing love and pity. Displaying fear of abandonment. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that list, every single one sounds like someone watching me on hidden cameras. Now, if you have any of those patterns in your life, listen to me and listen to me carefully. It is not your fault. It's nothing you've done. And you are not a bad person because of any of those things. If one or more of those things I just listed apply to you and your life, it's because someone in your past let you down. They didn't do something that they were supposed to do in relationship. And there's a great chance that person was an adult in some position of authority over you when you were a child. And let's be honest, friends. We should not have the same expectations for adults and children in relationships. Now, why this is so important is because experts tell us codependency often involves several other very serious mental health challenges. Low self-esteem, depression, anxiety, and acute levels of stress. People who are codependent, gosh, they felt like there was a pandemic before there was a pandemic. And if these patterns sound familiar to you, that's a signal that it's time to pay attention and that it's probably time to start learning new patterns because these old patterns come from a place that is costly to us. It comes from a place that is not sustainable. And ultimately, if we don't correct severe patterns of codependency, gets in the way of us being able to be ourselves in relationships and therefore prevents us from fully knowing people, fully being known by people, and we can never receive the love that others offer us if we cannot love ourselves. Aaron, thank you so much for opening up this line of discussion for us. I know I know it was a conversation I needed to have. And as we move deeper into talking about codependency, I would like to tell you about a dear friend of mine. His name is Miles Adcock. He's the owner and CEO of Onsite, which is this like world-renowned uh, emotional wellness and well-being um, center. They do leadership retreats and emotional treatments, in-depth group therapies. They have an incredible clinical 
staff. And then they also turn around, they create media and personal growth workshops. You know, I know so many people whose lives have been radically changed by OnSite. And so when I knew we were going to talk about codependency, the person I wanted to talk to, number one on the list, was Miles. And I'm so happy to share this conversation with all of you right now. Well, Miles, my friend, welcome to the Cozy Robot Show. Here we are. I'm excited to be here. I'm just so thrilled. Um, I was telling you right before we recorded, um, you know, my life has changed so much in the last few years, but really one of the biggest moments, I guess not moments, but biggest periods of transformation in my life started you know, right in January of 2020, back before the pandemic, if you can remember that era. And I went to a place called OnSite, which you're at least familiar with. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Slight familiarity with OnSite for miles. And, um, you know, I came back and um, people told me I, I speak differently. Like they... They hear something different in my voice. And I think what they're hearing is um, a higher degree of self-acceptance. Mm -hmm. And with it, just a little a little click back on the kind of performance I would always do in every encounter with every person to try and get them to like me. And it was such an amazing experience to be there. And you, with the, the the medical team at OnSite, have cultivated this environment um, that even for people who are very knowledgeable about psychology or mental health, or maybe have done a lot of work in therapy in the past, opens up new avenues of understanding and of exploration. And for me and my experience, I'm just going to go personalized here, the most mind-blowing understanding I came across and more than understanding that led to a change in the way I relate to myself and others was this notion of codependency. And I'd heard of codependency before. I thought that was uh, some kind of obscure and rare psychological condition that I didn't know maybe it was medicated or something, but certainly I was not codependent. Um, and then as we started to talk about and and practice things around patterns of codependency in my in life, it felt like you'd had cameras in my home. And so I've started to see the ways in which our society and our culture, in addition to our family systems, really encourages people into patterns of codependency. And so I wonder if we could start perhaps um, with the most simple question of all. Miles, what is codependency? Like, what do we mean when we say codependent or codependency? Well, si simply put, it's in, and there were a, a group of experts in the ACOA, uh, Adult Children of Alcoholic Movement, uh, which is where a lot of codependency was born, basically, was they started to evaluate addicted systems. Mm -hmm. Early on, they recognized that there was a primary um, person in every system that um, 
often needed support. It's usually the person that was hurting the worst or causing the most problems. But that if the rest of the system didn't change, that the likelihood that there would be sustainable change for the primary, in most cases, alcoholic or addict in this case, because this is back in the 70s, mm-hmm. um, had about half the chance of getting and staying better. And so they begin to look at the rest of the system and say, what else could be going on? And therefore, a deep dive on codependency uh, began to be studied. And it uh, was really popularized uh, in the 70s and 80s. But unfortunately, at its prime, when they were selling out conferences and events around uh, just the topic of codependency in the self-help and psychology world, it got pop culturized. And it mm-hmm. kind of lost its way to where it um, it felt as if uh, everybody had it. It was a universal. It's kind of happening with emotional and psychological trauma right now too. Is it loses a little bit of its weight and meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, that group got together because there's a lot of different definitions of codependency. But that group actually got together in 1989, and uh, several of them were mentors of mine. And they came up with a working definition. So it's the one I want to share with you. I thought you might ask that. And I just wanted to share <laughs> uh, that it is, uh, they define it as a pattern of painful dependency on compulsive behaviors and on approval from others in an attempt to find safety, self-worth, and identity. Mm. And I just think that is so succinct, so clear. And uh, it t- to me, it, it grounds uh, the importance of not just uh, the root and the origin, but also how prevalent it can be within all of us. And, you know, I know you asked me a, a specific question around of an area and expertise that we um, we carry at onsite and that I carry as a professional. But I'll just take a step back and say, you know, without an understanding or some recovery from codependency myself, I wouldn't be in the profession I'm in, A, mm-hmm. and B, I wouldn't be the man I am today. So it, it means a great deal to me because it's a primary condition in which I am in recovery from. So there's a certainly a personal anchor here, too, in, in addition to some professional uh, pursuit around it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of all the things, I mean, as you kind of alluded to, uh, there is a great breadth and depth to psychological research and to therapeutic tools and interventions as, you know, as a team at Onsite, you all look at things you can include in your curriculum. Why does codependency become, you know, one of the major points of emphasis, uh, like in your in your Living Centered program? Because we find it to be one of the most elusive conditions discussed or talked about in traditional therapy circles or counseling circles. I think, and it's surprising, honestly, that uh, Mm -hmm. more people aren't trained, equipped, or have some type of belief about codependency and what it is and what it exists and obviously the painful patterns it can cause. But there's a lot of people that will use different therapeutic modalities to try to walk people back into their story to unravel whatever parts of their narrative may not be serving them and anchor them into some type of self-worth or self mm-hmm. But I mm-hmm. think without an understanding of, of codependency and how it might be affecting you or the people around you, then it's hard to sustain some of uh, the tools and techniques that we would use to anchor people mm-hmm. in self-love and self-worth. So quite Quite simply, and I loved what you shared about your on-site experience where you said, um, 
even if you have a good understanding of psychology and therapy, there's still uh, an environment there where you feel you can stretch and grow and learn. And, and, and that ultimately is the goal is how do we get out of the way of what we believe uh, is divinely in every human being, which is their ability to heal mm-hmm. and uh, to empower them that the tools that they might need are not in any way. Uh, dependent on an outside source um, or another person, but they're actually empowered within them. And if the ecosystem's right, then no matter what you know, given enough margin and enough empowerment, Mm -hmm. then you can anchor into who you are and therefore get really clear about who you want to become. And so the anchoring into who you are, I think codependency really clouds that. And that's why we Mm -hmm. make that part of our curriculum. So we don't grow up in a vacuum. And one thing... Uh, you know, people who struggle with codependency or even people um, who've just grown up in different family systems or, or social contexts. Um, when we learn about <laughs> codependency or trauma or uh, medicating behaviors or in the ADP understanding of psychology, things we've called defensive affects, people start to feel like shame. They feel called out when someone, you know, clinically or academically describes these coping mechanisms, these ways that people survive. Um, so maybe, you know, if, if someone's listening right now and they start thinking, wow, codependency, uh, relying on others, difficulty finding kind of internal sense of self-worth, needing to rely on the approval of other people. That sounds like me. Am I bad? Oh, no. <laughs> um Maybe it would be helpful if we could understand a little bit, like, how does someone become codependent or or develop codependent elements for their personality in the first place? Usually, and I'm glad you said that, but usually it it starts early. So often Mm -hmm. it's an origin imprint from our from our family system. And it's when we have not been closely attuned as a young child, or we had a parent that wasn't necessarily emotionally literate or available. Mm-hmm. And we begin to realize that in order to get our needs met, we're going to have to take care of our caregiver so that they can then take care of us. And when we, uh, at that age, at that stage of development, if we start looking ex- that's that's ultimately where, uh, shame, I think, is born. And then therefore, we start searching externally uh, for that value and that need, uh, because it can be confusing internally if it's not being mirrored to us. Mm-hmm. And so it's ironic that shame is often at the root of codependency and a lot of um, challenging psychological conditions and things that we just struggle with as human beings, not to overly therapize or pathologize the conversation. Uh, But it also is the barrier that gets in the way of us exploring and owning it because often it's Mm -hmm. come through the lens of someone telling us this is what's wrong with you, that you have this condition when actually um, identifying, being able to own and then share with another safe person uh, something about yourself that might be um, not serving you in the best way is not what's wrong with you. It's actually 100% what's right with you. It's just our mm-hmm. profession has branded that element all wrong, probably um, unconsciously to create some dependence on us. 
um, mm-hmm. as an industry. I don't think it was an intentional thing because most of the people in my space, I think, are really caring, empathetic people. But we have, like every other industry, baggage. And I think a lot of the stigma that is out there around seeking and pursuing mental wellness and health, uh, you know, we create from our industry. And we complain about it, that stigma, but I think unconsciously we sometimes create it. And it was like what I was saying earlier about how it surprises me a little bit, but it doesn't, why codependency is not explored more in mainstream counseling circles. And in some people, some therapeutic circles, they would debunk or or um, push back on it. I think it's for the same reason that uh, I think there was a study done. This goes back, I think it was in 2007 or eight, where it showed that money was the number one stressor for 75% of Americans at that time. And it was the least talked about thing in therapy. Hmm. And so what that tells me is it's not that people didn't feel stress around that. It's just that those of us in our field are uncomfortable with that topic ourselves. Most mm-hmm. people aren't mm-hmm. that good with money in my field. And so therefore we weren't comfortable leaning in and talking about it with them. I would also say that most, a lot of us uh, in the counseling and helping profession are recovering uh, codependents. And so mm-hmm. it's, interesting that we might not invite people into that and usually to the level that we've done our own work or not. I mean, you, you point out something so important. I'd even say essential that it is very easy when we come across a robust model that can describe circumstances in our lives. Um, it's exciting to the point we look for as many ways as possible to apply that model in the world. So you can have codependency become the skeleton key to understanding humanity or AEDP or cognitive behavioral therapy or the Enneagram. All these tools become ways that people go, oh, finally, I understand people and I understand myself. Um, And so I can see, of course, that that enthusiasm can run wild in ways that make it difficult to talk about what may or may not be happening in a given person's life, and then that can have systemic effects. And, you know, I, I after I went to on-site, um, I became aware in which that um, people who really, truly, and deeply cared for me, my caregivers as a child, um, who truly love me, truly support me, had experienced relational difficulties when they were growing up that created patterns of coping that created patterns of relating that uh, created in me some pretty deep patterns of codependency. And that, that had led me to be in um, well, to be codependent in every major relationship in my life and the work I did in the liturgists has had really codependent relationships with the people I worked with. I had a, if you can believe this, a codependent relationship with the audience who listened to the media like their their approval of me became the the foundation upon which my self-worth was based and then um in my marriage you know i've had a wonderful 20 years uh this december jenny and i will have been married and for all 20 years we've been in a very um supportive codependent marriage and we've trained our children to be very codependent how they relate to people and 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 to to give this some specificity for the listener and for you miles what i mean is 
we manage each other's feelings and we expect people to manage our feelings for us in my home. That's been the pattern our whole life. And that can, when it goes well, feel really good, feel really normal, and even feel, I'd say, health. it can feel healthy. It doesn't feel maladaptive when it goes well. And then you face times of difficulty or stress and people's medicators get oversubscribed. Uh, and by medicators, I mean behaviors we engage in to manage our feelings instead of facing them directly. And we begin to see, oh, wow, there's some problems here. So I I believe um, this is not a professional opinion. This is, I'm not a professional, but I think some of the codependent patterns in our home contributed to, for example, to my daughter's struggle with anorexia, which I speak of with her explicit permission and encouragement. Hmm. Um, and then where I'm going here is this idea of enmeshment. Hmm. Uh, when we're enmeshed in relationships, it can feel really close. It can feel really juicy. And it can also kind of get in the way of genuine intimacy. Um, so Miles, like what, what is enmeshment and how do we know or have any sense when there may be enmeshment in our life and relationships? It is incredibly common. And, you know, ultimately it's when two people are in relationship where there are unclear boundaries between each. And it, it's exactly, you know, the outcome is exactly what you described. It's when you ultimately, you don't know where you end and they began. You start managing one another's emotions out of a sense of trying to find self-worth and safety. And it, and I can highly relate. I, I think it's one of those things like a lot of the areas that we hope to resolve, reset, recalibrate, kind of reconnect. I don't know in our culture if it's, a realistic expectation to mm. not have enmeshment at some area relational area in, in, in your life, just due mm. to the nature of even if you've got the clearest boundaries in the world, and let's say you feel incredibly healthy, healthy in who you are and who you're becoming, the chances of you entering into another relationship, whether it be friend, colleague, leader, spouse, parenting, whatever, um, with someone who has grown up in a system where there was intergenerational emotional trauma or what you said, just difficulties with relationships in a subset where we just don't do emotion well. Hmm. And as a culture, we just don't do emotion well. We really struggle holding hmm duality of emotion of meaning it's okay. There's good ones. There's bad ones. We really categorize them. It's okay to feel these. It's not okay to feel these. And the idea that you might could hold a couple things at one time, meaning it's okay to be scared and brave at the same time. It's actually probably the reality of most of us right now in this current mm -hmm. environment. But uh, usually um, we get so invested in the idea of optimism and hope that we avoid fear at all costs, or we get so anchored in fear and wrapped around that, that we can't see optimism and hope. And I think there's a dual perspective uh, in um, anchoring ourselves and holding um, our emotional state that ultimately uh, frees us 
to get clear on boundaries so that we understand where I end and where you begin and we can experience true intimacy. So there's a long way for me to say, I think we will experience pockets of intimacy and hopefully it will become prevalent in our relationships in life because it's pretty amazing and it's sustainable relationally. And I think we're going to have some enmeshment along the way. And I think it's not necessarily ruling it out. It is, it's okay based on my history or your history that this has a seat at the table, uh, but I need to understand it. I need to own it so that it doesn't drive every relational pattern that I have, because that ultimately leads to um, an unfulfilled self, which ends up mm-hmm. breaking down everything that the relationship was built on in the first place. Mm-hmm. Something you said in there is so important. I'd like to revisit it for a moment. You know, you said, so maybe enmeshment is inevitable in our culture in some degree. Um, and enmeshment being when we're unable to establish boundaries in relationships. I know for me, when I first started learning about enmeshment, I thought a boundary was something you established in a relationship that had some kind of inappropriate behavior associated with it. And that would be the framing I understood of boundaries. Boundaries is something you put up with something you need distance from in your life. And the idea of having a boundary with a spouse or a child or a close associate was unimaginable. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I'm learning that maybe um, boundaries are important. What's a, an understanding someone who starts with that kind of framing? Boundaries are uh, only a tool for solving problems with difficult relationships. What's a different way to understand boundaries? I think you said it quite clearly. I don't know that I could say it any better because I think boundaries is another topic that gets pretty overcomplicated. And uh, and, and I'll be honest, I, I have struggled and continue to, to struggle. And I have known, studied, and understand the importance of it inside and out. But often when I am in stress, um, a lot of my tools go right out the window. Uh, A lot Mm -hmm. of my training, Mm -hmm. my recovery goes right out the window. But the idea is, I think, to practice them over and over again so that I can understand that uh, a no to a really good ask. And And I'm not even talking about necessarily a professional ask. That's hard for me, too. But mm-hmm. a, a social ask or a, a phone call. Uh, a, in other words, this is a good person reaching out, seeking counsel for something. Um, a, a, a no is not just okay in that moment. Um, it is vital in that mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. And I think if we can shift the paradigm a little bit and stop seeing it as, yeah, it's okay. It's okay to have permission to do that. If that helps you take a, a step into the, the deep end on that, that's okay. But I think at the end of the day, it's not, it's, it's, it's not okay. It's, it's actually vital uh, mm. in order to create some sense or sustain some sense of self. Then there has to be clarity around boundaries, not just for extreme versions, but in our everyday life. I feel it's hard for me to want to dive deep on that topic, although I'm willing, mm-hmm. um, just because it's an area where I'm challenged significantly, mm. Uh, mm. particularly in this season, because I, I think um, I've, I have, you know, by the nature of what's happening, um, there's mm. been a significant amount of stress professionally, mm-hmm. which causes stress personally. 
And I have fallen back into a little bit of scarcity at times to where um, what I felt comfortable uh, saying yes to and no to um, is cloudy. Mm-hmm. Because at this point, I get in that hustle for my worth to make sure I'm going to be okay mm-hmm. and survive and ride out this storm that we're mm-hmm. in. And I've been encouraging people because a lot of people are asking questions to, to, to me in a professional context of um, how do we survive adverse and difficult seasons collectively mm-hmm. where we are right now? And I think what I've been working on is not trying to prepare uh, to get on the other side of it. In other words, not trying to get away from it, but trying to get in it. It's exactly Mm -hmm. what we do um, with the work at OnSite is we don't try to usher people out of uh, the deep end. We try to help them feel comfortable and teach them to swim in it. Mm -hmm. And exactly where I think I am with boundaries right now is reminding myself of my inherent value and of my worth and understanding that this is just a season. And uh, a lot of people have everything from financial insecurities to who knows what, because, the, you know, as you know, two things that the brain really fears is isolation and feeling out of control. Well, we collectively have a big dose of both of those. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you're like me, that boundaries may be a little harder right now, mm-hmm. depending on where you are and what season you're in. But the idea is, and the reason I share where I am personally is just it felt sometimes I think it can feel disingenuous and, and authentic um, for professionals to dive in on what they know if if they if it doesn't feel congruent with how they're living right now. Yeah. And so I wanted to just share with, well, obviously I trust you and, and I, with your audience too. I just wanted to share both that it's, um, I will say that the, the understanding in the experience and the permission and the work that I've done historically, um, is, in, is, is as valuable as what I just shared. Mm-hmm. It, 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 in seasons of struggle, I have something I can pull up through the lens of resilience that is there, but mm-hmm. it first requires me sharing with you that I'm in it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I don't know if you caught what just happened. I'm so delighted you set a boundary around discussing boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> That's so fun. <laughs> you said that more eloquently. It took me a long time to get there. <laughs> That's that's the easy part of of hosting is I just get to listen and, and summarize. Yeah. And um, you know I said a boundary because I'm starting to sweat a little bit. <laughs> I so resonate with that. You know, in this season, um, I've drawn back so much, withdrawn a bit since I got back from on site, and not just because of the pandemic, although the pandemic plays a huge role in the pace of recovery and the kind of regressions I experienced because of that universal and prevalent stress you just you know reminded us of um but i i've realized miles that i adore people i just adore people which people all of them just every person i meet i adore and i'm exhausted by people (laughs) like which people all of the people, even the people I'm closest to and love the most, they're just exhausting. 
And when we look at that through this enmeshment and boundary lens, my inability to believe that people will love me means I have a really hard time setting boundaries, which means I say yes to everything, which means my limited emotional and cognitive reserves get used up by other people, basically on a first come, first serve basis. And then I'm too tired to relate to people. And so I've been trying to go through this period of resetting and engaging in a few enough number of interpersonal um, relationships where I can what? I can actually set boundaries appropriately. I started that work with Jenny and the girls. You know, we have been working on sharing our needs openly in our home instead of telegraphing our needs understanding that anyone can set boundaries in conversations anytime they need to. And that's not a matter of rejection. And that work in our family system has taken the most of my time and energy now for nine months. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I've slowly been expanding that. And as I re-engage professionally and re-engage socially, I've been trying to bring in that element of I can actually be more present with people and interact with more people when I can also comfortably set boundaries, you know, in any relationship. And if anyone's listening right now and they are saying, wow, needing other people's approval more than having a sense of self-approval. Wow. It's really hard to say no. Um, oh my gosh. I had a, a parent who was emotionally illiterate or had a substance problem and had a lot of coping mechanisms and all of this stuff is sounding familiar. The other thing I love so much in what you just shared, Miles, is that the information alone doesn't actually help us that much. There has to be um, an experiential understanding. There has to be, um, ideally, uh, some professional involvement to begin that recovery process. So if somebody is listening or watching us right now and thinking, gosh, this sounds like it might apply to my life, what are some first steps they could take in moving towards a codependency recovery journey? Hmm. Well, typically I would start with finding one other person, I'm a little hesitant to say this, but in terms of codependency recovery, and I'll tell you why, but mm -hmm. if you could evaluate and find one other person who you feel is psychologically safe, in other words, um, you feel you can trust them, mm -hmm. and that, and if you don't feel they can do this, you can actually direct them and ask them to do this and see if they're able to and just say, hey, it would be really important that I share something with you and that if you could just hold it and not advise me on what I need to do here. Mm -hmm. I'd start there. Find one mm -hmm. other person and hold your truth as is, not try to advise you on the steps you need to take to do something about it. And I know that's kind of what you asked me to do. What are the steps we need to take? But I think the very first thing that we don't need it, we deserve it when we are pursuing um, parts of our story that we'd like to, as you said, reset or, you know, just reclaim is experience empathy because mm -hmm. it ultimately is the antidote to shame and it's the game changer as it relates to recovering codependency. And I'm not just talking about empathy that way. It's mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. 
And that's typically the, the hardest for a codependent. And the reason I was hesitant to share that up front was because we often in when we are in a master relationships or when we are deep in codependency, then we're going to attract other people that we need to either fix um, or that they have a significant level of codependency as well. And that's where a master often is born. So if you go to that person in the setting, they may not be able to generate or create the containment or safety. And it's no judgment on that. It's just, you know, lack of information and training and experience. Um, but I like starting there. I think the the obvious is um, if you can pursue counseling and, and therapy, and that would be my next step, mm-hmm. is I, I do not see seeking professional support as I said earlier, I don't think it's what's wrong with people. I think it's what's right with people. It's as normal as uh, having any other support system around you. Um, if you can pursue that, if you have the the means to pursue that and the time to pursue that, I couldn't recommend it more. Finding somebody who has a little bit of specialty in, in trauma and under an understanding of codependency. Uh, but I would start with find one safe person to share your truth with and, and then begin to uh, there's some other things you can do, exercises you can do. Um, you mentioned experiential, and I'm a obviously I'm a huge advocate of uh, a lot of therapeutic modalities that fall underneath an experiential umbrella. Because, like you said, information alone doesn't change behavior; it's going in up here, and ultimately we hold emotion down there, and that's what we're we're after. Um, we get wounded, and we experience adversity in experience. And I think it's our job as helping professionals or just good citizens, good people to curate experiences for people to heal in. Mm. And what I mean by curating experiences is exactly what I shared with you earlier. It's being a really good listener Mm. and holding an empathetic disposition for somebody, maybe for the first time in their life, they might ever be walking into and sharing this. Mm. Um, So I like that as a first step because I, Professional support through the lens of my profession, mental health and psychology, I think is such a key to a lot of the social problems we find ourselves in right now. And yet I'd love to see a culture one day that is emotionally intelligent, that is skilled enough to have uh, permission to do their work, reclaim their worth, so that this becomes part of our conversations in our living rooms, um, in our political circles, in our leadership circles, at work, home, boardrooms, you name it. So one day, um, I'd love to see organically, we understand as humanity how to take care of one Mm -hmm. another on the fall and on the rise. Um, So I always like starting there. And then step two is if you can get professional support, I couldn't um, encourage it more. Mm. And you've uh, you've made some pretty big changes at Onsite in order to do your work safely during a pandemic. How's that going? It, you know, it, it's been challenging and it's been really rewarding. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, you, you, when you dig deep in the way that a time like this calls you to do, you really get to know your team really well. And, you know, we had some hard conversations uh, in that mm-hmm. first week, closed down some of our live events and uh, over, honestly, over the next few months, but we had a choice uh, at that time, which is um, we've always wanted to create a culture here that allows people to be as they are, to feel what they're feeling and to show up with that. 
and be kind of anti-traditional as it relates to management theory, which tells you to keep emotion out of the workplace, which is really not mm-hmm. possible anyway. Mm-hmm. We, we try to be counterculture on that. And I will say the team did that really well. We had some mm-hmm. messy, beautiful, thoughtful, really connected meetings, and we walked away anchored into one another, unlike any other time before. And I think that's what gave us the ability uh, to pivot. And I know that word's getting used a lot now, but it's um, for good reason. For good reason, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to, to change, uh, to utilize some of the change techniques and t- technology that we may support others on, it allowed us to embrace that. And we went, um, you know, we've wanted to do this forever to diversify our socioeconomic reach and just to enhance our mission, which is to, to embrace, you know, our work through a digital lens. And, and we did that, you know, kind of overnight. We were, we, mm-hmm took a couple of weeks and put something together uh, that we felt was really valuable and launched that out there. And then we've been working hard um, that I think today we actually um, launched something brand new digitally that we're super excited about called Rediscovering You, which is a six week course uh, that actually is very much aligned to do exactly what we've been talking about. Uh, Rediscovering You is ultimately allowing you to reset, recalibrate, reconnect, and reclaim that part of you. It's very similar to what we do at the Living Centered program uh, that might feel um, it's it's disconnected or lacking in self-worth and self-love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. I, just, I just want to reflect something for a moment. You know, uh, Miles is my friend. Um, and... Um, this is not a sponsored message, this episode. Um, and so, because I do run ads, I want to be really clear when I'm not. And uh, what I do want you to know if you're uh, watching right now or listening right now is on-site radically changed my life. It changed my relationships with others. And it changed my relationship with myself. And I would strongly encourage you to look at the links below this video or click in your podcast player and look at the show notes there and just tap that link to onsite and look at some of those digital options Um, because what they are doing is not writing books like I do. Uh, It's not uh, just normal talking therapy. They are using evidence-based mental health practices to cultivate experiences for people that evoke positive transformation. And I want you to know how reticent I am to use words like positive and negative in the context of mental health. What I mean is those strategies we've used to stay alive in difficult life circumstances that get in our way. Miles and the entire team at Onsite Excel at helping people meaningfully move beyond those patterns. And the reason we were talking about codependency today, Miles, you were the first person that came to mind mm-hmm. was just because so selfishly of my own experience with your work mm-hmm. and how life-changing it has been for me and how it has changed even all the media I produce. Mm-hmm. Um, I also know, Miles, that you are also a media creator. You write and speak and record and share. So where are some places that people could connect with you if they want to go deeper with you in this journey uh, through media? Hmm. Thank you for sharing that. I'll give that, but I just want to say thank you for sharing that. It's incredible 
incredibly uh, meaningful um, to, I think just, uh, it, it means so much to me. And when somebody values it, um, it, uh, I just feel it and appreciate it. So mm. thank you, particularly somebody I respect. And, you know, we, we have a, a, a great origin story of our friendship of we met in an odd kind of place and uh, <laughs> the oddest <laughs> we, we, and in that place, we both felt out of place and we found each other and um, there were, you sense have become just a beacon of light, you know, with the way you view uh, connection and spirituality and psychology and a lot of the things that we have overlapping passion in, um, but you're just a, a safe and good human that I really value and appreciate. And so thank you. Thank you. Um, um, let's see. Uh, I'm not good at this part talking about me. So I would say um, at, at Miles Edcox is, is a good place to find me on socials. I probably spend most of my time on, on Instagram and I try to, it's a balance between you're going to see a lot of my kids and family because I'm so proud of them, but I also, and, and I like sharing about them, but I also try to share my thoughts about the human condition and things that matter to humanity and how we can all come together in times like these. And so that's one good place where I do a little bit of writing working on a book, but we got a minute before that'll be out. And um, anything at Onsite, at Onsite Workshops um, is where we, I put a lot of my thoughts and work into <laughs> as well. So, Great. Miles, thank you so much for taking the time out today. It has meant the world to me. Thank you for having me, my friend. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. So what a roller coaster episode we have been on together today. Thanks for sticking in there as we uh, figured out some technical things right up top. Um, but I, I, I wanted to circle back to something in that conversation. And that is this Rediscovering You course that Onsite has launched. Once again, this is not a sponsored message. But when, you know, they heard me kind of processing my experience at Onsite and the connection with people uh, in this audience, um, they did something that, that's pretty special. Uh, there's a link that just got posted in the chat and is in the description of this video. If you use that link to sign up for um, Rediscovering You, uh, you get $200 off the course. And to be clear, this course is special um, in that it is both curated and pre-recorded content and regular contact with uh, a member of the clinical staff at on-site. Um, so if you, if you have patterns of codependence in your life, this is actually one of the most economically accessible ways to get uh, support and to get help uh, as you move through understanding and relating to those patterns. And uh, I'm just so thankful that uh, the folks at OnSite put that forward. And the Green Triangle from earlier from Courtney Leak, uh, she's a, a, a therapist at OnSite and she's part of that course. So uh, comes with my highest recommendation. And that's going to do it for this week. So thank you so much for watching today. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you are watching and to follow on social media channels. If you'd like to join us for the after party happening right now, you can learn how to do that at CozyRobots.com. And remember, this show is made by the most talented and supportive team in the entire world. I'd like to thank each and every Cozy Robot. My producers, Tanner Hearn, Victory Palmazano, and Greg Nordine. Uh, the show's music was written and performed by Madison and Macy McCarg. Production support by Andrew Galucky. Production support and my assistant is Caitlin Hermstad. Designed by Sydney Smith. Motion graphic design by Landon Satterfield. 
Set design by Jesse Lane Interiors and wardrobe styling, craft services, slash make my life happen. Ginny McCarg, thanks so much for joining us tonight, friends. And believe me, I cannot wait to see you again next week. Take care, friends. The Cozy Robot Show.